This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Today, I'm joined by Diana Furcott-Roth, who's an economist, the director of the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment at the Heritage Foundation, which just celebrated its 50th anniversary, and is an adjunct professor of economics at George Washington University. Diana also has extensive experience in Washington, D.C., and has worked across four different presidential administrations in various senior economic policy positions. She worked at the Reagan Council of Economic Advisors, the George H.W. Bush Domestic Policy Council and Office of Policy Planning. She worked at the George W. Bush Council of Economic Advisors as Chief of Staff and Labor Department Chief Economist. And in the Trump administration, she worked as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Research and Technology at the Department of Transportation and as the Acting Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy at the U.S. Department of Treasury. She's also married with six children and has had an unbelievably successful career. Welcome, Diana. Great to be with you, John. Thanks so much for having me on today. Diana, I want to just start off with where you grew up and how you got interested in economics. Well, I grew up in England, and my father was an economist, so I was. We we talked about economics over dinner, and I think everyone in my family is interested in economics, and that's certainly where I got my first introduction to economics. And like, in what era um, was like what was going on in the UK at this time um, at the national level? Was there anything happening that that was particularly like interesting to you, or or that was particularly formative? Well, this was uh, this was the 1960s going to the 1970s. There was a lot of industrial problems with uh, uh, coal strikes and the entire socialization of the economy that then Margaret Thatcher would then disrupt uh, in the late 1970s, early 1980s. So it was a very interesting time whether government was indeed a solution to the problems that Britain had at the time, or whether more private sector activity and involvement would be a better solution. So we had a lot of discussions about that. Right. In my understanding from like the 1970s UK, there was sort of a lot of uh, tumult. There was, I think, uh, some issues with the UK debt, but there were a lot of challenges at that time. The Thatcher era was sort of a, uh, is, is often viewed as sort of a correction to that uh, tumultuous time. I want to uh, dig into your experience in government because I think there's just so many interesting things that I think uh, our listeners can can learn from your career and, and, your, and your incredible government service. And I want to start with your time at the Reagan Council of Economic Advisors. You know, the 1980s was certainly you know, a, a really interesting time in economic history. The Reagan Council of Economic Advisors employed many famous economists, including yourself. It employed folks like Martin Feldstein, Larry Summers, Paul Krugman, and John Cochran. Uh, I think many folks may not be aware of this, um, how many um, incredible economists today who we all know were there at one point in the 1980s. You were there when the Tax Reform Act of 1986 was passed. It cut the corporate tax rates from 70% to 35%. It cut personal tax rates below 30% was really the cornerstone to the Reagan tax reform and one of the most consequential pieces of tax legislation in the past 50 years. How did that come together and and what was it like? Well, it's really funny that you ask, John, because uh, usually... uh, staff at the Council of Economic Advisors are had on an academic year basis. There's a rotating group of academics that go through. 
But in May, I got a call saying someone had unexpectedly left. And I was working on taxation and revenue estimates for a small company called the SEV Economics. And they wanted someone who had experience in taxation to go over to CEA. So they said, would you come? Well, first I said no, because it would have been a pay cut. And then a week later, I called back and I said, yes, I would. And it was the most important decision I made career-wise. It was such an exciting place to be. Uh, and you get a high every time you walk into the old executive office building with its beautiful marble floors and its pillars. And we were working on different tax bills. There were a lot of tax bills that were going through Congress at the time. And in Washington, if you bet that something is not going to pass, you're generally right. Uh, so at the time in May, I didn't know that the Tax Reform Act of 1986 was going to pass. All I knew is we were working on different tax bills and looking at different revenue estimates, talking to people about what a tax bill should look like. And then it turned out that the Tax Reform Act of 1986 was signed into law. And here, what we had been working on suddenly materialized. So that was very exciting, very exciting indeed. But the Reagan administration was overall a wonderful place to work because you could talk about anything. There weren't these uh, communications people in the policy meetings. As long as it had to do with cutting taxes and cutting spending, you could talk about it. So CEA, the Council of Economic Advisors, could have meetings on privatizing the post office, on selling the national parks, on charging for the national parks, all these things that would be uh, in a different administration, perhaps politically very incorrect. But as long as it was about cutting taxes and cutting spending, we were allowed to talk about it. It was a very exciting environment. That's fascinating. And, and what uh, an amazing time to be serving in government. I want to uh, flash forward to the George H.W. Bush administration, where you served on the Domestic Policy Council and Office of Policy Planning. One, could you explain what the Domestic Policy Council does and, and what its function is um, along with uh, the Office of Policy Planning. These are two uh, increasingly important uh, departments within um, both the White House Executive Office, and but I think um, I think a lot of people may not be quite well, as aware. Well, well, yeah, well, so uh, first I was a, a Deputy Executive Secretary of the Domestic Policy Council. Uh, my boss, Richard Porter, as opposed to Roger Porter. There was Roger Porter and Richard Porter yes. there. Uh, he uh, said that uh, they were looking for new ideas in domestic policy because President H. President H.W. Uh, Bush was accused of not having enough domestic policy ideas. So uh, our job was to get together a group of policy ideas uh, that would be in preparation for the campaign and uh, that would do well with voters. And uh, so we had some really interesting ideas, some of which went somewhere and some of which didn't. One idea that didn't go anywhere was cutting capital gains taxes by redefining capital gains as capital gains after inflation. So quite a lot of capital gains is inflation. You have these inflationary gains. So we thought that if you redefined it as capital gains exclusive of inflation, that would immediately lower capital gains taxes. Because of course, at that time, one could not get a capital gains tax cut through Congress. Uh, that idea, unfortunately, was one that did not go anywhere because uh, the high ups at the White House said that this, um, this was too adventurous. They didn't think that they would be able to support it. Uh, 
in legal law and you couldn't just redefine capital gains. But that was a great idea and I highly recommend it to any future administration. Right. Even in 2023, capital gains tax brackets are not indexed to inflation. And yeah, they're not indexed to inflation. Whereas the and 1986... That's actually, why, that's actually why capital gains has a lower tax rate. It has a lower tax rate because it includes inflationary gains, but it's not indexed to inflation. So what would be better would be to make it more precise and index it to inflation, which perhaps when it was first put in place would be difficult to do. But now with computer programs, it's very easy to do. It's very easy to do it now. Right. And, but the 1986 Tax Act, the Reagan Act, uh, that did index ordinary income, so individual yeah. income, uh, labor income, uh, tax brackets to inflation. Because at the time, you know, inflation was very high in the, in the 1980s, and, and there was this issue of bracket creep, and you know, inflation would push uh, people uh, into higher tax brackets effectively when, when you're adjusting for inflation. That still is not the case on, on uh, capital gains, even um, 30, over 30 years later. Right, exactly, uh, yes, yes. And you find that when people, for example, bought a house uh, when they were just starting out and then they sold it when they retired, there was a huge run-up in home prices during the end of the 20th century. A lot of this would be inflationary gains. So they were paying taxes on inflationary gains. They did not benefit from these gains at all. Right. And, and so we have this Office of Policy Plan uh, in, in domestic, which I believe was at some point renamed the Domestic Policy Council, is if I'm correct. And then uh, the Bill Clinton administration in the 90s also created the NEC, or the National Economic Council as well, um, within the executive office. And, and that, I think, has become uh, increasingly one of the sort of more powerful arms of economic policy uh, planning uh, within the White House. And part of this is, I, I think, coordinating with con- you know, economic policy with Congress and, and sort of um, organizing priorities. Um, Another part of this is working on executive orders. When you were in the George H.W. Bush administration working on uh, working in the Office of Policy Planning and, and uh, Domestic Policy Council, I think George H.W. Uh, Bush signed an executive order allowing private sector investment for federally funded infrastructure investments. Could you talk a little bit more about that? And like, I mean, it seems like today, I mean, obviously, you know, that, that seems like a, an obvious thing, but you know, uh, the smart thing to, to allow private companies to you know, help to work on things like airports and things like that. But, I mean, this wasn't the case prior to the uh, late 1980s, early 1990s? No. In 1992, the, um, in 1992, if a piece of infrastructure had federal funding, then it couldn't have private sector investment. And this was especially a problem for airports because municipalities, cities didn't have enough funds to maintain the airports and air traffic was increasing. Uh, So we drafted uh, an executive order, which George H.W. Bush later signed, allowing private sector investment in those pieces of infrastructure that had received federal funding. And this became tremendously important because it allowed uh, more funds, more private sector funds to flow into certain projects. And um, President uh, George, uh, um, President H. W. Bush, uh, he he was um, he was very enthusiastic about this, and he saw this as a way of increasing investment in certain infrastructure projects. 
uh, after I left under President Clinton, the National Economic Council and the Domestic Policy Council were vastly expanded. They were set up as more coordination councils and they coordinated the work in the different cabinet agencies. Uh, when I was there, the Domestic Policy Council was a small group headed by Richard Porter. It just had about three or four people in it. The National Economic Council was headed by French Hill, who is now a congressman from Arkansas. Uh, and he and I both worked together when he was in the NEC, then uh, in the George H.W. Bush administration, and I was in the Domestic Policy Council. Oh, wow. The, it's fascinating history. And you know, to think about how uh, these economic policy-making bodies have evolved over time, uh, you know, also along with the Council of Economic Advisors, you know, which uh, was started in the 1940s with the Employment Act and, and how that has uh, evolved over time uh, as well. Um, and of course, uh, much economic policy is also decided from, uh, from Treasury um, as well, um, increasingly so, I think, in uh, the current uh, era. So I want to jump and flash forward to the George W. Bush administration, so Bush 43, uh, and what it was like working at the Council of Economic Advisors then in the early 2000s. You were there when the Bush tax cuts uh, were being passed. Um, there's also this was you know in the sort of post 9/11 uh, era. Uh, there was a, a, a recession following uh, following the uh, boom and burst. Um, what was it like at that time, and uh, what what was it like um, pushing the you know, Bush tax cut program? Um, certainly, amid um, you know an administration that had came in sort of on very strong uh, domestic policy ideas, you know, compassionate conservatism. Uh, we think about you know social security reform. We think about education reform. Uh, we think about tax cuts. Um, that was a, a huge part of the Bush 2000 campaign platform, and of course, 9/11, uh, 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 you know, was an event that really changed the course of the George uh, W. Bush administration um, with you know, the, the wars in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq um, that that would uh, uh, follow that. Um, but I'm curious, what, what was it like working on uh, the Bush tax cuts uh, in in the um, early 2000s at, at CEA? Well, President Bush came in with a mandate to lower taxes and the Economic Growth and Tax Relief Reconciliation Act of 2001 uh, was passed in May and uh, that helped uh, lower tax rates and uh, remedy a number of inequities in the tax code, which thereby encouraged more investment. And there was a big push to complete this tax bill and it was signed into law in May before one of the senators actually switched parties and uh, through the Senate to, as I recall, the Jim Jeffords, I think. Uh, that, that was Jim Jeffords, yes. Yes, exactly. So it took a lot of negotiation on the president's part. Then after that, we switched the focus to Social Security. President Bush was a big advocate of taking three percentage points of your Social Security contribution and putting that into a private account, which you could then pass on to your heirs. And we did a lot of work on that. He was very enthusiastic about it, went around the country talking about it. And there was a surplus, a budget surplus 
in 2000. And his idea was that he would use this budget surplus for the transition uh, to this new form of social security. But then 9-11 hit. And I was in the office of the National Economic Council director, Larry Lindsay. At the time, the plane hit the World uh, Trade Center. And the first plane hit and someone came out of the meeting, came into our meeting, said a plane hit the World Trade Center. We were discussing whether it was a transportation issue, who should take charge of it. Then we left the meeting at 9.15, the second plane had hit, and then we knew it was not an economic issue, it was a defense issue. And we went back to our offices and the director of the National Economic Council uh, was hustled away to uh, a basement room and the rest of us were told just to run, get out of the building, go north, because they thought that the plane that went down in Pennsylvania was aiming for the White House and they wanted us to get out of there. I, w I moved to get my car out of the parking lot between the White House and um, uh, the old executive office building. The Secret Service said, no, there's no time for that. Just go, just run north. They obviously thought something was imminent. And I always thought, I still remember how brave they were just standing there saying something's going to happen. We're staying here, but you need to get out of here. And um, so that, that, that was also a big memory of my time uh, there being actually in the White House on 9-11. Interesting. But then after that, then after that, of course, we couldn't talk about. Well, uh, the money for the surplus went to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and it went to fight terrorism. It went to fight the war on terror. So then we could not um, go forward with the privatization of Social Security, or I shouldn't even call it privatization because that's what gets privatization a bad name. It was allowing three percentage points of your contribution to go to a private fund. And if you imagine what that would have been like in 2001, the stock market has grown so much since then. If we'd allowed everybody to do that, people would have been so much better off now. And Social Security would have been in a much, much better position. Plus, there are major inequities in Social Security where low-income Americans die earlier, uh, minorities die earlier. So they lose out from Social Security. They don't get the stream of funds that they would have if they lived to their 90s. So this would have enabled them to have a pot of money that they could have passed on to their heirs. So, because they would have owned those three percentage points. So this was really a, a, a very foresightful idea by um, President Bush, and it's really too bad that it was not implemented. Fascinating. And yeah. so you also served in, in the Labor Department uh, under Secretary Chow. I'm curious, um, what were your main priorities there? I know there was um, uh, one push to bring more transparency to union expenditures. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yes, a very important initiative of Secretary Elaine Chao was uh, to make it clear to union members how their funds were being spent. Because before she took over, unions could just put down on their accounts $1 million expenses or 500, um, 500,000 other, they could literally say other, they wouldn't have to reveal how they spent it. But these dues going to the unions, they came out of union members' paychecks. And Secretary thought sharply it was very important that there'd be transparency, that these union members would know exactly how their dollars were being spent. So she put in place what was called the LN2 rule that required unions to specify all expenditures over around $200 had to itemize them, say what they were. And as a result of this, some of the expenditures uh, 
uh, were no longer so common. So uh, if there were expensive hotels or golf trips or expenditures on T-shirts, the union bosses would have to reveal that. Otherwise, members would complain. So I think this was one of the most important things that Secretary Chow did when she was Labor Secretary, is that transparency. So that all these hardworking union members could see what was going on with their dues. Fascinating. Um, an, an interesting um, time, uh, to the least, um, for, for labor policy and, and economic policy as well. Um, in that uh, early 2000s, uh, you know, pre-Great uh, you know, pre Recession era, I want to fast forward to the Trump administration, and I want to talk about a bit about your time at the Transportation Department. You served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Research and Technology. Um, I'm curious, like, what does that uh, involve, uh, that particular role? So uh, the Office of Research and Technology has a, a vast empire uh, within the Transportation Department. There's the Bureau of Transportation Statistics. So there's the entire Volpe National Transportation Systems Research Group in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that has a thousand people and does path-breaking research. There's the Transportation Safety Institute in Oklahoma City, uh, which has an entire plane graveyard, a graveyard of broken bits of plane that come down so that inspectors can learn why a particular crash happened. Uh, plus, it has a bill. Plus, the, my group had a billion dollars worth of research funds in the different modes. That's the Federal Aviation Administration, the Transit Administration, the Highway Highway Administration to oversee. So there was a lot to do, but most of my time was spent on this tiny little office, the Office of Positioning, um, Management, uh, and Timing, and Spectrum Management. Uh, which dealt with GPS and dealt with spectrum. Spectrum are these airwaves that most people don't even know exist. Uh, they make a phone call, they don't know it's because their telephone company has bought a group of these airwaves, which are known as spectrum. And the transportation department was allocated spectrum for automotive safety. Uh, it was allocated 75 megahertz in the 5.9 band, a band of spectrum, and the Federal Communications Commission wanted to take it away for unlicensed Wi-Fi. That's the kind of Wi-Fi that you get if you sit down um, in the airport in San Francisco and you get on your phone and it says free Wi-Fi, click here, or Dallas Airport, free Wi-Fi, click here. Now, there's really no reason the Wi-Fi should be free. But there are a lot of big companies that wanted free Wi-Fi. Why? So you could surf the internet, so you could go shopping, so you could get ads. And they came and lobbied the Federal Communications Commission every day, saying we need more free Wi-Fi, more free Wi-Fi. So they wanted to take away our spectrum that would have been used for connected vehicles. So cars would have access to spectrum, and then when it looked like they were going to bang into each other, there would be some kind of warning or a car could be connected with a pedestrian via cell phone. So if a pedestrian was going to step, out, step off in the curb uh, and there might be an accident, then the car and the pedestrian would have a warning. And these things could be on traffic lights. So if two cars were going towards each other and they didn't know they were going to be hitting each other, again, it could give that kind of warning. And this technology had been building and developing for 20 years when the Federal Communications Commission first assigned uh, these airwaves for this purpose. 
uh, and then the Federal Communications Commission just um, said they were going to take it away. So there was a big battle. The FCC ended up taking more than half of it away. There's some left. I don't know if it's enough for all the automated vehicles, the intelligent transportation systems that want to run it, uh, the buses that would be able to change the lights to uh, green from red if they were behind schedule, the ambulances that if they were rushing to an accident, again, could change all the red lights to green lights so that they wouldn't be going across, uh, breaking a red light going across an intersection. So we thought it was very short-sighted of the Federal Communications Commission. This was one of the many battles we were involved in, another involving a company putting itself right next to the global positioning system ban, band, and then a third one involving radar altimeters on airplanes, uh, these little devices that tell an airplane how far above ground it is. And again, there was an auction of airwaves that uh, put in danger some of the uh, radar altimeters and the Federal Aviation Administration had to threaten to close down some uh, airports in poor, poor visibility if uh, these telecom companies didn't pull back on the big towers they're going to put for 5G next to airports. So it was a very exciting time, a very exciting time. And some of the most important research, the most important research project I think I did was a grant to the National Bureau of Economic Research to set up a transportation economics program. And normally, when people talk about allocating high-speed rail, they don't say, well, how much is Diana going to pay for a high-speed rail ticket between San Francisco and Los Angeles? The way they say, how much would Diana be willing to pay for an iPhone 14? They just say, we're going to have high-speed rail because China has a high-speed rail. They don't do an economic analysis of it. But economics should be as much a part of transportation as it is of any other field. And so the, the Transportation Department gave a grant to the National Bureau of Economic Research to set up a transportation program. And in April, I was at the first post-pandemic in-person conference at NBER. And there were transportation economists discussing subjects such as whether bus companies, a bus route does better in the presence of rail, or uh, how are minibuses in Cape Town, South Africa doing. And it was just fascinating. I think that that's one of the most important legacies uh, of my time at the Transportation Department. And the current administration has continued the grants to NBER uh, for this project. And it's great that there are so many exciting young minds focused on how to make transportation more economical and how to align it more with economic principles, because it's a subject that really deserves more research. It's fascinating to think about all the uh, R&D and, and infrastructure uh, in that domain, and, and certainly rail's been a, a big topic, and, and it's, I think, a bit different um, for the U.S. in the sense that the U.S. is just such a massive landmass, and, and it's, um, it's somewhat more difficult uh, to, to build uh, um, you know, as efficiently, and obviously you know, unions, play a role in that too and you know how expensive it is to build uh you know some small amount of uh, subway track in, in new york city is just enormous uh, enormously expensive um but meanwhile you, know, you look at like florida for example and uh, you know they built uh, uh the bright line which is uh essentially you know like a private sector um right. project and and uh they, they built it from you know miami to fort lauderdale and they're extending to um they, they built it to west palm now and they're they're extending it to orlando 
Um, it, it's yeah. interesting how successful that's been. Whereas um, I feel like uh, other infrastructure projects like uh, you know, uh, updating the New York City subway or, or trying to get um, high-speed rail between or, or some sort of uh, rail between um, uh, California, uh, between Los Angeles and, and San Francisco is, is so difficult. Um, right. Well, Brightlight is a private company. They estimated the demand. They looked at how much John or Diana would be willing to pay for a ticket from Orlando to West Palm Beach or Miami, uh, or and it's going to be extended to Tampa too, I believe. And they saw that there are these tourists who fly into Orlando and they also want to go to the coasts, or they're in Tampa and they want to go to Orlando, or they're in Miami, they want to go to Orlando, and they estimated the demand and uh, they uh, put up this private high-speed rail. So they really went through all the economic mechanisms for seeing that it would be worthwhile. Another interesting economic area is uh, road paving. You might think road paving isn't interesting or it's not an economic area, but really it is. And when I was going to the transportation department, my former chairman of the economics department at Swarthmore College said, Diana, you've got to figure out why there are potholes in the roads. Why do we still have potholes? So, of course, uh, I tried to figure out why there were still potholes. And one answer is, because we were doing research into all these paving materials, you don't have to have potholes. But of course, the non-pothole materials are much more expensive than the others. And states and cities and municipalities are limited in the amount of funds that they have. So even though it might be more, uh, it might be more affordable over 10 years to have better paving materials and have more money up front. They don't have more money up front. They just have a certain amount of money up front and they can't afford the more expensive paving materials. So it really, um, makes you look twice at how these things are structured and maybe there should be a better way of allocating more funds to begin with, uh, thereby lowering the overall cost and reducing the number of potholes. And a lot of municipalities have not managed to do that. Wow. It, it is fascinating. Yeah, all, all these um, infrastructure uh, and, and issues uh, but, you know, are, so, are so interesting. And, um, yeah. Yeah, it, and then, of course, the pandemic hit when I was at DOT. So then we had the Economic Rebuilding Task Force. We were asked to do so much more data collection because uh, all the transportation networks were about to uh, close down because no one was riding them. And then the federal government uh, was paying some of them to and subsidizing them to stay open. And we had to generate data on a daily basis showing uh, what travel was as a percentage of pre-pandemic travel for all different modes. And we didn't have that right away. So we had to get new data sources to do that because that's what the leadership at the transportation department wanted. And we had an economic rebuilding task force to deal with different problems that were arising in all the different modes of transportation during the pandemic. So the last year was very much dominated by pandemic transportation. Fascinating. And you were also nominated for assistant secretary, uh, for an assistant secretary role at, uh, at transportation. Um, each year, yeah. um, but your nomination was was stalled um, for certain procedural re reasons. Can, can you sort of like walk through our our listeners um, what that process of like Senate confirmation is like, and and um, you know, what was going on at the time in terms of Senate confirmations, and and then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and how he was prioritizing sort of reshaping the judiciary. And could you explain a little bit what what going through that whole process is, is like? Uh, yes, yes. Well, in March 2017, shortly after the election, uh, Secretary uh, Elaine Chao asked if I would 
be the nominee for uh, Assistant Secretary for Research and Technology because I had been her chief economist over at the Labor Department. And I was nominated on um, in September 2017. I had a hearing in October. And the next step after you're out of committee, after the committee has voted you out, is to get a vote on the floor. Uh, but uh, Senator Schumer was holding up candidates, not just me, everybody required 30 hours of floor time for a vote. Those were the Senate rules. So uh, it was very difficult to get that vote on the floor and thereby get position. So to begin with, I, um, I was sent to the Treasury Department as Acting Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy because uh, the Office of Personnel Management said if you go to transportation before you've been confirmed, this is not going to make the Senate happy. They're not ever going to vote to confirm you, so why don't you go to the Treasury Department? Because that nominee for Assistant Secretary of Economic Policy, Mike Forkent, is in the same situation you are. He hasn't been able to get his vote on the floor either. So I went to the Treasury Department uh, for about uh, just under a year and uh, worked on uh, economic forecasts, uh, went to the OECD in Paris to explain how U.S. growth was influenced by our lower tax rates, which of course they didn't want to hear. Meanwhile, I was waiting for this vote on the floor and I had to be renominated every year. Well, in um, February 2019, I think presidential personnel got tired of this. They said, Diana, we need you over at DOT, just go as Deputy Assistant Secretary and we'll still try and get you confirmed as Assistant Secretary. And uh, so I went and uh, I oversaw the research. I was waiting for the vote on the floor, but it didn't happen. And uh, I was actually the longest waiting Trump nominee not to get confirmed. Uh, but um, I was in the situation with many, many other people. There were many other positions uh, for which the nominee uh, was not confirmed just because of the polarization on Capitol Hill and the difficulties. And the climate is so divisive that it's difficult to get people through. Senator McConnell quite rightly focused on judges because they had lifetime appointments, uh, whereas assistant secretaries just come and go. And um, so as a result, there are many, many talented judges who have their jobs. And uh, I, I still believe that I contributed a great deal to the Transportation Department uh, with the Deputy Assistant Secretary title rather than the Assistant Secretary title. Uh, that's fascinating. I'm curious, like, what are these OECD meetings in Paris like? Uh, in, in what, like, it's an interesting organization, um, and we, you know, we hear about it a fair amount. Uh, you know, they put out a lot of great data that economists like to use that, um, typically like normalized data across countries, um, but it also is sort of like a, a, a meeting or a gathering place. We, we actually have an ambassador to the OECD. I know like I think three of their uh, key sort of deputy uh, positions at the OECD uh, are typically controlled like by three different, I think, regions or countries. There's like one representing the U.S., one from Europe, and one from Japan. Um, what are those meetings like when you go to Paris? And what was it like uh, at, at very, the time? They're very formal. People are assigned seats and they're very, very scripted. So people knew what I was going to say uh, in advance and I had a time slot. I was actually with a Hoover Institution fellow, uh, Tyler Goodspeed, because he was assigned from the Council of Economic Advisors uh, also to go to these same meetings. And I was right. He, he was acting chair at the time. 
in, in well, 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 even before he was acting chair, he was the member who went. Uh, oh, okay, got it, got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he went as a member, and then I went as acting assistant secretary for economic policy. So as a treasury representative and a CEA representative. So we went together, uh, and, and um, yeah, we we made speeches. We met with the different people. Then it's a very very formal atmosphere. You get a chance to. Uh, meet people more informally during the coffee breaks, uh, but uh, uh, it's a very interesting organization. Fascinating. And then the Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy role um, is an interesting one at, at Treasury. Typically, that involves, I think, briefing the Secretary uh, on things like jobs reports and um, mm-hmm. you know, walking through um, economic data releases, um, what does that role involve? And I'm sure it, it changes from administration to administration as well. Um, but from your experience, what does that role involve? Well, the, the most interesting part is you get to see the economic data the night before. So I would see the economic data the night before and I would get to explain it to Secretary Mnuchin. Right. So, so you're uh, like one of the like four or five people in Washington that get uh, these economic yeah. data releases, exactly. like non-farm payrolls. The chairman of the economic advisors as the treasury secretary, the president gets it, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. It's just a few people who get it. Uh, anyway, so it's really exciting to get it. And then when when he was away, when he was out of town, then I would have to go to a secure room and give a memo uh, that would get to him through some encrypted way. I couldn't just call him up and say, uh, Secretary Mnuchin, here are the data. Uh, so anyway, so the most fun part of the job is getting the date the night before. And then when there's, uh, uh, for some Treasury secretaries, you would brief them as to what to say at press conferences, but Secretary Mnuchin never needed any of that. I mean, he was very familiar with all of the economic issues, and he didn't need a lot of briefing. Right. Former Goldman Sachs partner um, and, and uh, a longtime uh, Wall Street and finance uh, veteran. Um, Fascinating. So I want to fast forward now to the work that you're doing at the Heritage Foundation. Um, You're doing uh, a lot of very interesting work on uh, environmental regulatory policy and and transportation regulatory policy. Uh, We've had some interesting discussions on self-driving cars and and what that's like. I'm curious, what are the big things that are interesting to you right now? What's interesting to me is how the government is trying to reshape the economy through regulation. So last year, about 6% of new vehicle sales were electric vehicles. And the Environmental Protection Agency is putting forward a proposed tailpipe emissions rule, which would result in 60% of vehicle sales being battery-powered electric by uh, 2030, and about two-thirds being battery-powered electric by 2032. And this is just a dramatic change in the way Americans drive. Because first of all, they would have to recharge these vehicles rather than going to a gas station. And not all Americans have charging stations in their homes. And these vehicles are much more expensive. So the best-selling car in America is the Ford F-150 pickup truck. And the electric version is about 10 or 12,000 more than the base internal combustion engine version. And plus the Ford uh, Lightning, the electric version of the F-150 doesn't tow anything because it would need a lot more strength for the battery to actually be able to do tow. So it's a quite a different vehicle. And the vehicles don't work very well in cold weather. 
So that's why Wyoming just has 510 battery-powered electric vehicles, because all of us have woken up and found that our battery in our regular car is dead because of the cold. I mean, if you're driving an electric vehicle, it loses 20 to 40 percent of its charge in cold weather. So that's a major disadvantage. So Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, Alaska, there are very few electric vehicles. So this is really, this would really reshape the way Americans drive. And it would just take away the freedom just to get in your car and drive wherever you want. You could drive wherever you wanted as long as they had a charging station and not too many people were waiting to charge up their vehicles at the charging station. So I've been doing, I've been doing a lot of work on that. Passing. On the disadvantages and trying to explain the myth of net zero 2050. I have a talk I give on campuses called Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy and Net Zero 2050. And I ask how many believe in Santa Claus, how many believe in the Tooth Fairy and how many believe in Net Zero 2050. Because we've even had executive from oil companies come and visit us at Heritage and talk about their transition to net zero. And I asked one of them, I said, Ed, do you really believe that we're going to net zero in 2050? And he said, well, within these four walls, I can tell you that I don't. But outside, I can't say that because people would call for divestment of our stock. So this thing, I mean, it's not going to happen, net zero 2050. Even if we could paper over all of America with solar panels and have wind turbines everywhere. And even if we could generate all America's electricity from solar panels, hydropower and wind turbines, you still need fossil fuels to make the wind turbines. You need fossil fuels to make the solar panels. You need fossil fuels to have a backup for the wind turbines when the wind doesn't blow. So it's just all a myth. It's never going to happen. But people talk about it. It's part of this environment, social and governance movement. Fascinating. And there's there's been a lot of uh, talk recently over the Inflation Reduction Act uh, you passed last year, and and that um, is certainly, I think, introduced a lot of new spending uh, in the area of electric vehicles. Can you explain a little bit about what the inflation, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act is is doing in that space? Well, it would give uh, substantial grants for different types of green energy. Uh, and it would also give uh, grants for certain cars if supposedly if they're made in the United States with American components, they would get a seven and a half thousand dollar credit to buy that EV. But the Treasury has decided that um, commercial vehicles are all allowed to have the tax credit. And if you lease a vehicle, that counts as a commercial vehicle. So anyone can lease an EV and get the tax credit which is really going around what Congress wanted. Congress also gave um, tax credits for battery plants in the United States to try to bring the battery manufacturing back from China. Right now, 80% of the world's batteries are produced in China. And one big concern that people have with electric vehicles is it would make us more dependent on China. Right now, we're independent in terms of oil and natural gas. We are a net oil and natural gas export. But uh, we, if we can't rely on these fuels to power our transportation system, then we would be dependent on China for the batteries. Because the cost differentials are just too great to have all the batteries made in the United States. China subsidizes the capital because they give artificially low interest rates to favored companies. The labor is lower, not just because wages are lower, but because 
uh, China uses forced labor uh, from uh, Xinjiang, uh, slave laborers, the weaker population that's put in concentration camps, and energy. China is still building more coal-fired power plants, and its carbon emissions are increasing every year. It has pledged that it will reduce carbon emissions from around by 2027, but it's not doing so yet. So basically, on labor capital uh, and uh, energy, they have an advantage over us. We're never going to be able to produce batteries at the same cost that they come from China. So uh, we're giving political power, we're giving up our dependence, our energy independence to China with these electric vehicles. The components also are manufactured in China. So it's a very big problem that people should be more focused on. And there's a bipartisan concern about China power. It's not Republicans or Democrats. Everyone's concerned about Chinese aggression, Chinese power. So this is a very serious subject to be looking at. Fascinating. And I want to talk a little bit just about self-driving cars. Um, so I remember seven or eight years ago when I was in business school in like 2015, one of the biggest things then was you know, self-driving cars and there was this sort of prediction that like in 10 years we would all have self-driving cars so, like what 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 exactly is going on in, in the self-driving space and uh, or in the yeah. like I'm curious like I, I around San Francisco you'll sometimes see these self-driving cars go around but they largely still have human drivers in them um, but I'm curious like where do you think this you know, has the potential to disrupt you know, things like trucking and like, how soon do you think that that is going to take place? The first thing we have to be able to do before having self-driving cars is have a car that stops before it hits something. If we can just get our current vehicles or new internal combustion engine, new vehicles with drivers, to be able to stop before they hit something, we will have a real achievement and we will really reduce the number of people killed on the roads, the 40,000 plus people killed on the roads every year. So until you can get a vehicle, until you have the technology to get a vehicle to brake before it hits something, we're never going to have self-driving cars because that's criteria number one and we can't do that. But uh, self-driving trucks, I think those are another story. Uh, there's a company called Locomation, which has what's called convoying trucks. And truck number two is behind truck number one. And it has sensors that keep it the right distance apart. And the driver in truck number two can go to sleep uh, on, the, on the highway while driver number one drives. And this is important in trucking because there are new hours of service rules that say you can't drive more than 11 hours at a time. Uh, that means that for 13 hours, your truck, this immense expensive piece of capital, is basically still and not usable. So if you can just have a truck number two follow truck number one, and then when truck number one has, the driver has exhausted his hours of service, he goes to sleep, truck number two pulls ahead, and they continue down the road, that's an immense achievement. So I can see a big potential for these convoying trucks. They follow a certain distance behind. And the way they're set up right now, when the trucks are in the city, both drivers are awake. Once they're on the highway, driver number two can go to sleep, and then they switch positions. So I think that uh, driverless trucks are going to come before driverless automobiles, unless the automobile is on a fixed route, 
when you go to an airport now, um, you generally get on a driverless train that takes you in between terminals. You can see that driverless shuttles can take you on a fixed route between terminals or maybe between um, a senior citizen's home and a hospital, uh, something like that. Uh, but to have them fully around everywhere, we're not going to get that until we can get these cars to break before they hit something. And they have to be able to distinguish, by the way, between a child running in front of the car and a paper bag or a plastic bag blowing in the wind in front of the car. It's not a simple matter. Wow. It's fascinating um, just to think the degree to which uh, it could really uh, you know, disrupt uh, you know, such a big industry like trucking and, uh, and, and all the uh, you know, important regulatory considerations that uh, go in hand with that. I also want to talk like just on this whole conversation of energy. I want to talk a little bit about nuclear energy. And why is it the case that like, nuclear energy has basically been at a standstill in the U.S. for many, many decades? And why new uh, nuclear power plants can't be built? Uh, and I think th there's a number of reasons why this is the case, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. There are a lot of regulatory obstacles to nuclear power, and I'm not a an expert in this, but uh, it certainly produces dense emissions-free energy. And I have a colleague, Jack Spencer, who's writing a book on it, who's looking at the different obstacles uh, to, to nuclear power. And we're not at Heritage at all suggesting any subsidies or any government funding for nuclear power, but we need to have a serious look at these regulatory obstacles and uh, encourage more nuclear power plants to be built. Uh, there's one being built in Georgia right now that's about to go online with Southern Company. Uh, there's also these small modular reactors that can be brought into certain areas, provide energy, uh, and then be taken out uh, once uh, their fuel is spent. These may be very good for emerging economies in Africa, Latin America, uh, that need more dense energy. Because as you might know, John, the World Bank is um, prohibited from lending money for nuclear or for coal-fired power plants. And these countries cannot get to the level of the West unless they have some dense energy sources. They need to have electricity, they need to have running water, they need to have sanitation systems, they need to have electricity so they can have manufacturing plants. And one of the um, reasons that we see by the vast migrations that we do people from Latin America trying to come to the United States, people from Africa trying to come to Europe, is because uh, at the differential levels of energy. The West has benefited tremendously from fossil fuel energy. Uh, we can recharge our cell phones at night. We don't generally have blackouts unless we're in California. Uh, we can uh, drive where we want. Uh, we have running water. We have sewage systems. And other countries need to get that same kind of energy so they can come up to our living standards. And it's immoral for us to say that we have reached this place, but we're only going to allow emerging economies to generate electricity through hydropower, uh, wind and solar from now on, because that damages the environment. Well, I want to talk a little bit about just like natural gas for a second, because you know, so nuclear energy has been sort of stalled and, and uh, it's declined, I, I think, quite um, unfortunately in, in largely all parts of the world. Um, you know, in, in Europe, it, it's been a huge issue, um, certainly amidst the 
Russian invasion, uh, invasion of Ukraine, um, you know, where you know countries like Germany and France could you know be um, you know in a much better place if they had uh, uh, you know better nuclear uh, infrastructure and, and and that they if they you know, weren't closing down nuclear plants, uh, they you know they wouldn't be so reliant on uh, Russian gas. Um, you know, similarly, like I, I think what's interesting about like the whole natural gas story is like there's still a lot of regulatory barriers to it, but in in the U.S., you know, it's been uh, enormously uh, an increasing source of energy, and it is less carbon intensive than things like coal. I'm curious, like, what do you think the barriers are to natural gas, and and its further expansion? Oh. We have uh, vast amounts of natural gas here in the United States, and the barriers to expansion are, first of all, uh, there's barriers to uh, leasing on certain federal lands, uh, offshore development, and also pipelines. We have a number of different agencies that are slowing down pipeline approval. There's the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that has to approve these pipelines. There's the Interior Department. there's the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is looking at climate risk of companies' projects. There's the Office of the Control of the Currency, which has a climate risk officer looking at banks' lending for climate-related projects. Guess what? Pipelines count as climate-related projects. So do developments in terms of natural gas plays. So there's big pressure from different parts of the federal government not to produce uh, the gas, and once, and even if we have it, not to uh, have the terminals and the pipelines that allow it to go out to consumers or to terminals where it can be exported abroad to offset the cuts from Russia. Uh, so, uh, uh, so the, this is in the United States. The United States is particularly advantageous in terms of the property rights situation, where if someone discovers natural gas under their land, they're allowed to give permission for fracking. This isn't true in other countries. So in many other countries, such as Britain, my home country, uh, the everything under the ground belongs to the crown, uh, King Charles, in fact, or the government. So if you find natural gas on your property, you can't. You don't have permission to use it. You don't have a financial incentive. It's not yours. And it's like that in many other parts of the world. People don't own what's under their property, and that's why. Uh, natural gas, uh, even though it could be fracked in other countries, uh, the financial incentives are not there often. Plus, there's environmental concerns. Well, it, but, uh, the, the, but, but emissions in the United States have gone down by about 1,000 uh, million metric tons over the past 15 years. In China, they've gone up by about 5,000 million metric tons. Our use of natural gas is really driving down our um, uh, carbon emissions. Absolutely. I mean, to me, it seems quite crazy um, that you would want to you know, halt the construction of LNG pipelines, LNG terminals that would allow the, you know, the export of further natural gas around the world. You know, it just it seems to me like you know it's a hugely you know carbon uh, reducing um, agent. Uh, you know, the the introduction of you know natural gas and and, and horizontal drilling and fracking um, over the past sort of decade or the popularization of it over the past um, uh, decade or so. And it seems wild to me that 
you know, why someone would want to halt something that on net would be a hugely carbon uh, reducing uh, activity, uh, you know, that is, um, you know, further um, exporting of natural gas and, and further uh, further reliance on it. Um, so it's, yes, you can just look at you can just look at New York State, John, which has the Marcellus Shale. So the Marcellus Shale is equally in New York State and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has developed its share of the Marcellus Shale, but New York hasn't. So uh, there's a, a lot lower uh, incomes in parts of rural New York State compared with rural Pennsylvania. Plus, New York State won't let the pipelines through. So that means you can't get natural gas up to New England and it has to be heated by uh, uh, oil. There's uh, frequent oil uh, that uh, um, there's a lot of um, oil heating in homes. And until the war with Russia, Russian tankers could be found refueling uh, oil in New England ports. So there's real need for more energy in New England, and yet you can't even get a pipeline through New York State. Wow, fascinating. Well, Diana, this has been uh, an amazing conversation, just hearing about your experience in government across four different presidential administrations, um, hearing about you know, some of the most consequential economic policy uh, decisions uh, over the, uh, the past few decades, uh, and hearing about your very interesting and, and fascinating thoughts on um, where we're going with environmental regulatory policy, infrastructure, and research development uh, research and development in areas of uh, you know, things like electric vehicles, self-driving cars. Um, it's been uh, a really fantastic conversation, and I really want to thank you for joining us. It's been really well, thank fantastic. Thank you so much, John. Thanks so much. It's really been great talking to you today. Thank you. Today, our guest was Diana Furcott-Roth, who's the director of the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment at the Heritage Foundation. This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hurtley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us. Baby, you give me-